Christy Drutman, and you are listening to Brown Girl Green, where I interview environmental leaders and advocates about workplace member diversity and inclusion and creative solutions to the climate crisis. I am working to change the image of what it means to be an environmentalist in the 21st century. To start off today's show, I would like to acknowledge that I'm recording this podcast on Ohlone land, otherwise known as the Bay Area. This is your daily dose reminder that we are all living on stolen indigenous land and that we must acknowledge it as often as we possibly can if we are given the platform to do so, like I am today. Now, let's begin. In our last episode, we were discussing how our community is going to be able to properly deal with a crisis. Especially for people of color, a lot of us were not born into families or taught how to manage or invest our money. I grew up in a very frugal Filipino household where my mom was a wizard at crunching numbers and supporting my family, but I never actually got the breakdown on how to do any of that. It was just about not spending lavishly, living within our means, and remaining humble with our finances. But as I've gotten older and have learned about the realities and injustices of economic inequality in our society, I feel it is especially important for young people, especially young people of color, to learn about money and to figure out how we can build intergenerational wealth for ourselves and our communities. When we are thinking about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, unfortunately, the environment remains an afterthought when people are just trying to survive paycheck to paycheck. We can't talk about the climate crisis if we don't address economic inequality and who has access to wealth and who doesn't. We have to figure out what options are available for us to slowly adopt sustainability into our lives in a way that feels more empowering and contributes to our well-being, rather than something that has to drain our bank accounts and ruin our economy. In order for us to reshape this, we have to rethink how companies, financial institutions, and our own financial spending are connected to the current environmental crises we have today. We are met with two very awesome experts who are thinking about people's money and the planet. The first person in part one of our episode today features my good friend, Joelle Saustime, who talks with me today about how to just manage basic personal finance in a time of crisis. She gives us palatable and useful tips to turn your anxiety about money into a tool for empowerment and even to think about how to be more sustainable along the way. Then, in part two, I chat with Lila Holtzman, who works at As You Sew, a nonprofit leader in shareholder advocacy. Basically, that means she helps people who have the money to invest to choose companies that care about making a sustainable and societal impact. So, if that's your squeeze, stick around for part two. Now, let's get to the episode. excited to introduce today's guest. We met freshman year of college (laughs) such a long time ago. We met at this amazing, I don't even know if you call it like a camp. It was like a training ground. Summer organizing retreat. SOR. Organizing retreat. SOR. I don't even know. 2013 or 2014. Oh my god, that was so long ago. And we met at this camp. We were learning about just like what does it mean to like organize campaigns on college campuses around divestments, like moving money in college campuses away from fossil fuels. We bonded. We were talking about life. And I was just like, we're both really goofy and we had a good time. And anyways, I just really wanted to invite her on my show today because 
She is just a wizard when it comes to learning about responsible investment. She has her own show. She is really passionate about this intersection between thinking about how to change the world, but also how to keep your money on lock. So I would love for Joelle to introduce herself and to tell more about the work that she does. Thank you, Christy. Well, first of all, thank you so much for hosting me and just for being who you are and for having this platform. I feel really grateful. Yeah. So very base level, personal finance is how you manage your money. And I like to break it up into your current self. So like current Joelle and then your future self, future Joelle. So I think that a lot of people hear personal finance and think it's not sexy, but it can be sexy when you start to achieve your personal finance goals. So that is like a very important place to start with personal finance is setting your goals. So that's going to look different for everyone. Some people have high credit card debt. I mean, um, some people just want to save like a thousand dollars. Some people just want to get in control of their spending. Something I would encourage everyone to do is start thinking about retirement now, which Mm. we're young and we're like, oh, retirement, like that's so far away. But if you set those things now, they will, you will make it so much easier for yourself in 40 years. So that's the first thing I would say. And then in terms of how you actually enact these things, another thing that I really want to emphasize is behavior. So you also want to set goals that are realistic for yourself, because if you're like, I'm going to never spend money outside of my house ever again, like that's just not going to happen. But at the same time, you do want to challenge yourself to be disciplined. So like the goals that you set, maybe make it a push goal. If you think, oh, I can only save $100, push that. Maybe try to save $1,000 and see how you can make small behavior changes in your everyday life to reach those goals. Did that that answer the question? I feel like that was a lot of information. (laughs) (laughs) I think that was was great. I think it sounds like, you know, it depends on the person's like, Mm-hmm. personal aspirations for what they want to do with their money. But it sounds like there's some like core things that yeah. have, like lined up. Yeah. Just, just to speak really quickly to those core things, the way that I, I kind of break it down into a couple pieces. The first thing is getting your current spending in control and managed. So the way to think about that is just where you're spending your money how much you're spending and if you're spending it in the right allocation. And I can talk about that later with budgeting, but that is what budgeting is, is basically figuring out how you're spending your money and figuring out how you can make that the most efficient for yourself so that you can do other things like the second piece, which is paying down debt. And the important thing here is starting with high interest debt, which is usually credit cards. The longer you have high interest debt, like credit cards, the more it grows and the harder it is to pay it off. The other part of that for a lot of people is student debt, which we can also talk about a little bit later. But student debt is something that you kind of will have for like 30 years of your life. So you're going to need to figure out how you can pay that with budgeting. But also you're just going to have to pay that inevitably as part of your like monthly expenses. And so once you figured out your budget, once you've figured out how you can pay down debt or manage your debt, if it's long-term debt, then the last thing you want to think about or the two last things is savings. So I would recommend if you are able to, save at least 10% of your monthly income. That sounds really hard. And for some people it is. And if that's like, can't do that right now, that's totally fine. But once you start to work with your budget and think about how you're managing your money, then you can get to savings. And then that leads to growing your money, which is investing. And that is the last piece. So just to sum that up really quickly, manage your money with a budget, 
pay down high interest debt like credit cards and then manage long-term debt like student loans or a mortgage, then get your savings right. If you can prioritize that, that's super important and will help you. And that can lead to investing, which is growing your money. Whew, that was excellent. That was That's great. a lot of information. Do you have any questions? Yeah. It, so, so if you were going to like level it out, it sounds like you want to get your, your debt paid off first and focus on that and then focus on savings. Or like maybe you could like figure out, depending on how you budget it, you could have a bunch of like savings stored away to help with that debt. Is that like kind of how it would work? It's kind of a combination of things because sometimes we have to use credit cards just to meet our immediate needs. But credit cards, like I said, that's that category of high interest debt. And that can be really dangerous for us in the long term because um, just to sum up interest really quick, whoever lends you money, like a credit card institution, they say, I'll let you pay, like I'll let you buy a thousand dollars a month on my dime. And for the privilege of doing that, I'm going to charge you up to maybe 20% of that $1,000 each month. And then as long as you don't pay down that debt, it grows and it grows and it grows. And so something like 20%, that is a lot. That's like on $1,000, that's $200. So that's why I say focus on the high interest debt first. Okay. Things like student loans are usually lower interest rates, like maybe 5%. And it's also just like, it's such a large sum of money for like a large part of your life. So you kind of have to accept that that is going to be just like part of your monthly expenses. But credit cards, you have a little bit more control over. And if you're able to pay that down immediately. And then savings, I would say it probably depends on the person. Like I'd say, put your money toward that high interest debt so you can have more money in your pocket. Okay like right now, today, or next month, so you don't have to pay that. And then when the money is in your pocket, you can save it. It's it's kind of like on a case-to-case basis. I think a lot of people think, oh, you have to have like tons of money saved and you're going to be in debt. Like it's, it sounds kind of impossible, but it sounds like break it down based on your priorities and like what you are most valuing, at least in like the moment, but still thinking about your long-term goals, that seems like the, the right balance yeah. uh, to try to execute. And building off of that, money in general is a very sensitive and can feel like a really overwhelming subject. So, I mean, like you just said, you just laid out a bunch of information. But yeah, I think it's a really like this like uncomfortable, sometimes taboo subject that sometimes people don't want to talk about or acknowledge. And I think that it can be often dismissed as like, oh, I'll, I'll worry about that some other time or, oh, I'm broke right now, but I don't actually know what that means. And I'm going to keep having this like lingering thought in the back of my head that I'm like mm-hmm. struggling right now, mm-hmm. but I don't know what to do. And mm-hmm. so I'm just wondering, how do you think we could make today's conversation, especially for young people like around our age, hey, we can figure this out together rather than it being like really overwhelming. Do you have any recommendations addressing that? Yeah, totally. And I have had that exact interaction with many people that are very close to me because you're right. It's very sensitive and sometimes it just feels easy, easier to not talk about it than to deal with it. But I think that one thing that we can do is think about like the long term and like destigmatize talking about it. If if you're in trouble, like that's okay. So many people have financial stress in so many ways, but the thing is that it won't get better unless you confront it, unless you come to terms with it. And 
I think, I think one way you can do that is kind of like relationships with people that are close to you. I'm always willing to talk about this stuff with people too. And I have had this conversation with a lot of my friends. Um, but the other thing that is kind of different about today is that there are also tools available to us with technology that can also make these things easier. Uh, so one of those things that I like is mint.com. You can connect it to your bank account and then they can show you how much money you're spending. And they also can help you bring in um, different sources if you have like a credit card and, and you're trying to figure out how to pay off that debt or a student loan. You can link it all in the same account. And then I think that just seeing it on paper, like getting it, even if that's too stressful for you, even if you're like, eh, I don't want to use technology, just like getting it down on paper and writing down, like, I need this many dollars every month to get by. Okay. I'm spending this many dollars every month. Mm. Where's the breakdown if I'm spending too much, if I'm spending more than I have available to me, you mm. want to try to live within your means. Um, so the idea behind the exercise of budgeting is where am I spending that money? And where can I be cutting down? Because there are certain things that you have to pay every month. Rent, utilities, bills, things like that. Yeah. So you have to have those things covered. And I call those fixed expenses because they're fixed. They don't change. Yeah. Then there are other expenses that are like variable expenses. They vary how much you, you pay every month. Mm -hmm. um, so the, that's it. If, if you're spending too much in the variable category, you kind of want to figure that out, <laughs> you know, and that's, that's the value of putting it on paper and seeing where am I spending my money? Because if I'm living outside of my means, I'm using my credit card too much, like that is going to put myself in, in stress in the future. Even if right now I got like a cool, like new hoodie that looks really awesome in the future, like I'm going to have to figure out how to pay that. So again, that was a lot of information. I hope that's helpful. And I hope that no, that's kind of, great. Like, yeah. Yeah, I think people don't plan it out. They just are like, okay, I'm going to spend this money because I want to live my best life. Right. Which is fine, but it's like that, that has consequences. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you have to think about like, is it worth it to, to have those consequences be met in, in the short term or the long term? And either way, it's like about just like acknowledging it and making a plan for it is what's exactly. important. Exactly. And also... Like, yeah. Right. And also to the, the point about this discussion is that you can also live more sustainably yeah. And help cut those expenses uh, in different ways. So, yeah. Yeah, we will get into that in the we next We will get there. <laughs> uh, interesting question. Uh, what do you feel is one of the most common mistakes or misconceptions about personal finance, in your opinion? Sure. Yeah. I think that, like, like we were just talking about, is that it's too hard. I, and, and it's really, I mean, you, you hit the nail on the head, Christy, is that there's just like a lot of stigma around it and there's just a lot of fear. And people don't respond well to fear. And so I totally understand that. I think that, yeah, the best thing you can do is just like start the conversation, get things on paper. The other misconception is that if I do something today, it won't affect me tomorrow. Yeah. This is like something they say in economics. There's no such thing as a free lunch because mm -hmm. there's always someone on the other side of things paying for something. Yeah. And so I think that credit cards tend to be... Um, a really difficult one because it feels like, oh, I can pay for these really cool things for my birthday or whatever, and then I'll figure out how to pay it in the future. Something that is probably the best thing you can do for yourself is live within your means, yeah. especially with the big expense category. Same thing like rent, utilities, like that's where you spend the majority of your money. 
So live within your means, especially there. And then in like the fun money spending, same thing. If you don't have money for something, wait, <laughs> save until you have money for it. Yeah. Because it's just, it's so much more stressful to get into debt. It's so much harder to pay it off because of interest. It's, yeah. that's how it's built. I'm interested in your own view. What are some practical ways people can plan money for the future while also considering the environment? Well, let's start with budget. Okay, okay. so planning money for the future, again, like I said, uh, you break it down into your rent, your fixed expenses, your fund money. And then with, with that exercise, you are able to start saving. And then that's how you can kind of plan for the future. Once you have a nest egg, you can use that money to start building wealth. Um, so like I said, I recommend 10% of your income if you're able to. The other thing, given the circumstances right now with coronavirus, I would highly recommend cutting down your expenses so that you can save a, an emergency fund. An emergency fund um, is made up of at least three months up to six months of uh, monthly expenses. And monthly expenses means how much you spend every single month. Obviously, that's not like something you do overnight. I recognize that's totally hard. A good place to start is just try to save rent for the next month. That is in terms of planning for the future. Then for your future self, let's talk about investing. So investing is, in essence, a way for you to grow your wealth. And I think that it's something that traditionally has felt really inaccessible. But again, with things like technology, we are able now more than ever to invest small sums of money. You can invest like $100 today. And the other thing is that with responsible investing, we can actually put our money where our values are. Um, so the, the key thing for this that I want to highlight is technology. So the idea behind responsible investing, like I mentioned before, is that you are taking money out of things that say are fossil fuels or things that do not support your values. And then you are refunneling them into positive reinvestment, things like uh, solar companies or renewable energy companies. And so I think that for the longest, I felt like, OK, like investment sounds awesome. How do I do that? Because it's like uh, someone tells you to invest like, okay, sure. Like how do we even start the logistics of how you actually invest? There are a couple different ways. So if you are still employed right now, God willing, and you are fortunate enough that your employer provides a 401k for you, a retirement fund, that is a way that a lot of people invest where you set aside like 5% of your your uh, biweekly check or whatever, and it goes into that retirement account. One way that you can invest responsibly through that is by changing, um, and you'll have to go through like your employer portal or however that works for you, um, is for looking for um, mutual funds or index funds or ETFs. Um, and those are kind of complicated. Yeah. I, would, I would like to explain those things, but it might take a little bit of time. So just think of those really quickly as like investment products. Things okay. that will grow your wealth just, just for the purpose of like having this discussion and look for ones that say like green ETF or like sustainable fund. And um, I think I'll probably just write a blog post about ones that you can look for so you know the actual names of them. That so quick recap on that. If you have a 401k, you can look for sustainable investment funds that you can invest. And if your employer does not provide that through like Charles Schwab or whatever, advocate request that they do provide that because that is part of why we've seen a good shift in the last few years is that people are really demanding this more than ever. Okay, so that's the first thing. Similar story for IRAs, which are also investment accounts for retirement. If you are able to, you can choose to invest in sustainable or green or 
ESG mutual funds or uh, ETFs. Okay, so the next thing is robo-advisors. So this is more if you don't have an employer account like a 401k, but you still want to start making investments, there's this thing called robo-advising. So there's this idea of managing money. So basically like the idea here is that you and I are not really that sophisticated of investors. We kind of like see a company and we're like, oh, that company looks cool. But there could be all of these things that we don't know about that maybe they're going to go bankrupt tomorrow and all this stuff. So that is why we employ others who are professionals to manage our investments for us, because that is what they do all day long is they research about these companies. They're you know, doing all these things to make sure that they're making good investments for you. And traditionally that has costed like a good amount of money when you're investing. Uh, The cost of investing is the fee that you pay someone to do that. Mm. Um, So with technology nowadays, there is this thing called robo-advising where you can get that managed money. And just just so people know that it's like a AI, like algorithms and like technology things are doing the management for you because they're smart and there's probably like a human component too. But that has decreased the fees so that people like you and I can just pay like 0.25% and we'll get $100 of our money invested in an educated way so that, you know, you're not putting $100 into a company that's like going bankrupt tomorrow. Instead, you're putting in in a portfolio that is diversified. Uh, which just means like you don't, you're not putting all your eggs in one basket. So that is another way that you can access investments. And the way to do that is Google like robo advice, like best like ESG or sustainable robo advisors. Go do some research about ones that you like, ones that have low fees, pros and cons of each one. And then you just sign up for the platform and then they'll ask you some questions and then you can invest through that. The last thing that I would highlight is you can, and this is a little bit riskier because of kind of what I said before about investing like just directly into companies. You can, if you want, if you have a company that you feel really passionate about, that is like, say like a solar panel company, and you really just want to support that company, you can invest directly in that company by buying Mm -hmm. their stock. And stock is a, just like a very small percentage of a company that you get to own by giving them money. So you give them money in exchange, they give you a very small part of that company. And hopefully over time, the company becomes successful and worth a whole lot of money so that your small percentage becomes worth more as well. And then you can sell it when you retire and feel really good that you supported like a solar panel company in that way. So similar thing about logistically, how do you actually do that? There are platforms called brokers. And so you just make an account with a broker. One example is Robinhood. They are an app on your phone. So you just sign up, you link it with your bank account, and then you can just buy stocks like that. So with that, again, I would very heavily emphasize that you do your research. Don't just go spending money like, you know, (laughs) like it's nothing (laughs) because investing is hard. And that's also, again, why, why I would also kind of advocate for paying people to manage it or robots. <laughs> yeah. And so then I guess like to, to wrap all of that up, the last thing is that the more you advocate for sustainable investments in, like I said, whether it's your 401k or like there's a trading platform and they don't have sustainable options, the more you advocate for that, the more they, they take it seriously because they see that as demand for these products. Mm-hmm. And the more demand there is, the more there's an opportunity for them to get paid, essentially, because yeah. that's how like you know businesses think. So if there's business opportunity, if there's market opportunity for these advisors or investors 
to serve a larger basis of clientele. And millennials want this. Like there's so much research about how much demand there is for it right now. So yeah. the more that you advocate for it, the more options that will be available. That's what we've seen in the last year. I think I saw something that was like, there were like 100 sustainable mutual funds or, or ETFs or something in 2018. Mm-hmm. And then in 2019, there were 300. And, and that has been a product of people really requesting these things. I think everyone got an information bomb right now. <laughs> I, and I mean, I have a similar question as someone who just asked the question in the boxes. There's a lot of the, this talk, especially in the environmental world, like caring about the stock market, caring about these like very like capitalist mechanisms is like mm-hmm. the antithesis of caring about the environment since mm-hmm. the stock market is invested in exponential growth. But mm-hmm. yet we do need more people like young people getting involved in these things and taking back the power of the market, which feels very capitalist, but it's also like, if we're not doing it, where's that money going? So mm-hmm. it feels like a really complicated issue that like I face where it's like, I want to put my money into the stock market. I would like to see it grow, be invested in companies that I believe in, but yet like, like this person, the stock market feels like it, you know, is built to not care about the environment. Mm -hmm. So I'm just wondering what your perspective on that is. It's a spot on point. Like sustainability is at odds with the stock market and with investments because it like legally companies in their documents are required to maximize shareholder value. Yeah. And that is on a short term timeframe. And how do companies do that? They cut corners. They don't treat employees well. They outsource things. They cut costs in any way that they can. And that's that's how it has been for the past however many years. But I think that totally like hear this because it's it's challenging because at the same time, that is like the system that we have and that has so much power over how things work. So that is where the advocacy part comes in, because as frustrating as it is to see that, knowing that large corporations are the biggest culprits of environmental degradation, we are seeing some progress because last year, I think, or maybe at the beginning of this year, there were like 180 CEOs of large companies that pledged to be more sustainable. And I read a couple weeks ago that the state investment fund of Japan and CalSTRS, which is, I believe, the pension fund for teachers Mm -hmm. in California, and then another large asset manager stated in a press release that that they see that companies that are only focused on short-term profits as bad investment partners. Mm. And that is because people, because of the advocacy of environmentalists and people who care about social change, are really out here highlighting that sustainability is the only way for us to make this work. So I think that involvement, there, there, there are so many ways to enact change. And I think that we need all of those ways. I think one of those ways is involvement and advocacy in the existing system that we have. Yeah, no, I think that that's, that's really important. And I, I mean, you kind of already touched on this, but you feel mm-hmm. like personal finance and the way ways people are thinking about their finances and longer term investments could make a big impact on. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I think it's, um, it's a lot about our behavior too, because if you've ever heard the term vote with your dollars, Mm. like that, that does matter. People are still going to buy stuff from companies, 
But things like social media these days and like more reporting on malpractice and bad environmental practice, bad social practice, it does damage companies' reputation. So a couple things that, I mean, that you could do like today to start to make change here is your personal spending habits. So where you choose to spend money, which companies you choose to support. If you don't want to support large corporations, you can do research about those corporations that and how they treat their employees or the environment, or ask a friend who's really passionate, (laughs) someone like you or me, if research feels kind of hard in that way. You can also support local enterprises. And I mean that in two ways. So if you, so the first thing I think that is an interesting point on this is banking. So the way that banks work, if you bank with a large bank like Wells Fargo or Citibank or whatever, there's this thing called fractional reserve banking. And this is one of those that I say is like, sounds scary and complicated. The way that this works is that when we put like, I don't know, $100 in our bank account, that doesn't actually, that's not actually in the bank account. Hmm. The bank keeps a fraction of the deposits that everyone puts in the bank. So it's usually like 10%. They'll keep that on hand just in case, you know, you need to take your money out. The rest of it, they invest. They're Hmm. lending out to corporations or mortgages or whatever. And with these large banks, something that is challenging with that is that they could be lending out to fossil fuel companies or companies that do not have interest in the environment or people. So something that you can do is move your money from a large bank to a local credit union. And local credit unions are sometimes owned by employees, sometimes owned by local shareholders. And a lot of the time, they don't have that interest to be lending to those large corporations. A lot of the time, they're investing in local community projects or things like financial education. So you get kind of the twofold benefit of not really like contributing to these large corporations, which are large polluters, but you also get the benefit of investing in your local community. And then they also will often offer members benefits because they don't have like that like shareholder like incentive where you can have like a higher rate on your savings account or lower fees for different services, things like that. And then the last thing I think is just your day-to-day things to just like being more sustainable in that way. You can think about like the budget categories I said before, if you break it down into your rent, eh, I don't know if you can be more sustainable with rent, but with utilities or those fixed bills, you can definitely be more sustainable there. And I'm sure that you have a lot of things here that you've talked about oh, yeah. before, which is like, yeah, so so feel free to jump in, but like yes. turning off the lights, like not keeping um, appliances plugged into sockets because of like phantom energy usage. Uh, yeah. Something I saw today is that if you are streaming, if you stream on a smaller device that <laughs> takes up less energy, then that is more energy efficient and will also save you money. like using less water, not keeping your house, using natural heating, like sweaters, (laughs) things like that. So kind of going through each category of your expenses. So like utilities, groceries, same thing with groceries. You can also shop at local co-ops. You can do a a Google search, like co-ops in Washington or whatever. And same thing. A lot of the time they're owned by workers. They're owned by community members. They can be less expensive. Yeah. So go through kind of each of those areas of your life that you're spending money and think how you can change your, your behaviors in really small ways that will save you money, but also will contribute to causes that you care about. 
Yeah, I mean, building off of that, I mean, I'm always a big advocate. And I didn't really know this until like last year when I was living on my own a year out of college. But bulk buying saves you so much money. Right now, it's really difficult because like due to sanitary reasons, a lot of stores are like cutting off bulk buying. But like Mm -hmm. once this whole mess is over, I highly recommend bulk buying. And I, I always go with the principle of like, find something that is like good for your body, good for your planet is going to last you a long time. Mm-hmm. So it's not things that are just like, you know, you buy an item that's only going to last, you know, for like two or three days, like buy a lot of certain things that, and they usually sell it for cheaper because typically mm-hmm. a lot of companies sell smaller package units and they charge a ton more. But if you take out the labor it took to make that packaging or make that small unit item and you instead budget out your time, I think people think that time is not something you can budget, but time is just as important of budgeting as your money. And mm-hmm. I think that when you're thinking about it, okay, yes, I'm going to have to cook and meal prep these ingredients, like bulk buying that is going to save you so much more money than buying these like processed, like box things that you're probably going to waste and throw away. And when we're thinking about sustainability, uh, my biggest recommendation is how can you squeeze the most juice out of an item as possible before you dispose of it? And Mm -hmm. what one of these is going to have like the longest lifespan. So instead of like buying a bunch of cheap disposable napkins, invest in like a towel that's going to last you for years. Like that mm-hmm. is going to cut your costs. And I think people don't yes. intuitively think about those things. Um, and they just keep buying the same stuff because we're like conditioned that like, that's the way to live your life, but you can actually save money by cutting down those expenses all the time. Right. So and I, think- I mean, honestly, I feel like a lot of it is just like modern convenience, things like bottled yeah. water. Like if you had told someone in the 1950s that we would have bottled water, they would be like, what? Why are you putting water in plastic? Just get it from the sink. You know, like, so I feel like, you know, it's just like, just kind of, I mean, I, I, I love what you said. I think it's just like going back to sustainability and things that make sense that, that you would do without like modern convenience. Yeah, literally. Like that's going to save you so much more money. It's just going to be more inconvenient. Because you're like spending more time, but you're not spending more money. I wanted to take a quick break in today's episode to actually put budgeting into practice. So let's talk about the stimulus check that may or may not be hitting your bank account in the next couple of weeks if you live in the U.S. We will be talking about this more when we cover the last half of the episode with Joelle, where she'll be giving tips to those of you who are unemployed or struggling with living paycheck to paycheck on thinking about personal finance and the planet. To be honest, $1,200 isn't enough for anyone to live on. For example, for those of us living in the teeny tiny overpriced Bay Area, People like my friend are spending their entire stimulus check on a month's worth of fixed expenses because they lost their job. As for the rest of the U.S., a lot of people don't even qualify for the stimulus check. Students who are claimed as dependents on their parents' tax forms will not receive these funds. Can you imagine how many students who just graduated or who are still in school who need a check like this and just aren't getting it? I've been out of college for two years now, and I think about how college is stressful enough without worrying about how to pay to freaking survive, 
And I feel like those of us who have the opportunity to receive a stimulus check right now should think carefully about how to use it. So for those of us who aren't struggling right now, I want to offer some ideas of how you could budget or think about how to use your check. So like Joelle said, you could focus first on using some of your stimulus check or you know the amount of money that you have available to pay off your fixed costs like next month's rent, utilities, and groceries. Like Joelle said, you could focus first on using some of your stimulus check or the amount of money that you currently have to pay off your fixed costs like next month's rent, utilities, and groceries. If you are able to not spend all of the check on that, and have some left over, we can use Joelle's next step by saving some away for a future emergency fund, especially putting this money in a high interest savings account or a retirement account to save for later could be a really good call. Then whatever you're able to budget after creating a small emergency fund for yourself and paying off your key expenses, and honestly, this sounds like la la land if you're able to actually do this, but if you can, then you could consider donating it to people who are in need and didn't get access to the stimulus check. So this can also include businesses or organizations who you feel passionate about and particularly want to support right now. I'll be listing some organizations that I have heard about or think need a lot of support right now in the show notes. And you can decide if you might want to donate uh, some money to those organizations in their time of need. So now we're going to be getting back to the rest of the episode with Joelle, where she'll be offering some awesome tips on how you can live more sustainably and not go broke while doing it. Building off of that, someone asked, how would you suggest money management for people who are unemployed and or full-time students who are living off of their savings, but also want to support environmental causes? Okay. So I might need you to break that down yes. Um, because I think there are a couple different parts there. Yeah. With like first money management in general for people Mm -hmm. who are unemployed or like living off their savings, like paycheck to paycheck. That's Mm -hmm. like the first part. Then second part is you don't have a lot of money. You want to be sustainable. You want to like support environmental organizations or causes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Is it possible to do both? And if so, how would you do that? I mean, super relevant questions just because I feel like so many people are having such a challenge with that right now. So there are a couple ways I'm thinking about this. I think the first is um, unemployment resources. Uh, People may or may not be aware that the government passed a $2 trillion stimulus package, uh, which is intended to help people, unfortunately leaves out a lot of people. So the first thing I would say is look into resources that are available from the government. Uh, The second thing I would say is that there has been some really incredible organizing around resources outside of the government uh, with different mutual aid organizations. And so mutual aid is exactly what it sounds like. It is communities coming together to provide aid to one another, recognizing that some people have been left out, some people don't have access to the same resources as others do, and that People with those resources can help out because we are all connected and we are all a community. So if um, you are really struggling financially right now, maybe just do a quick Google search, mutual aid funds in my city. I know uh, a friend of mine is helping organize the mass redistribution fund. Uh, I think it's redistributionfund.org, which is specific for Massachusetts, but that is that exact idea. 
There's also one in Washington that is COVID-19 mutual aid. Another large, uh, I think, national body is the New Economy Coalition, which is, I think, neweconomy.net. So that's the first part I was, as I would say, seek out support that's available to you. Yeah. The second part, I think, is just, I mean, cover those expenses that you have to. There are a lot of states talking about rent and eviction. Um, so I'd say maybe do some research about where your state stands or your city stands with that, because that's the big chunk expenses. If there are other expenses that you're feeling really stressed out about, like student loans, credit cards, call your service provider and see if you can negotiate. Because, I mean, they're not dumb. Like, they know what's going on right now. And you might be able to get maybe a lower interest rate. With student loans, you can defer your loans right now, which will really help put money back in people's pockets. And uh, for certain student loan providers, interest is not being charged until September. Wow. Uh, so that, that's another way. And then, yeah, I think just focus on your survival expenses. Uh, focus on those things that you need to get by. See if you can negotiate payments um, so that it won't affect. I also think I've read, I don't know if this is totally factual, but I've also think that um, credit scores there's some forgiveness with credit right now if you end up missing a payment too. Were there other parts of that question that I missed? The second half was just about how could people still like care about the yes. environment right now um, while yeah. doing this. I have some ideas, but I would love for it to hear. Yes. Some okay, cool. So here's, I'll, I'll pitch my idea and then I would love to hear yours. I think maybe if you aren't able to give financially right now, uh, you can give your time. And there are a lot of, if you're healthy and you're able to, there are a lot of organizations that need a lot of help right now. So I think, again, it's maybe just a quick Google search, uh, volunteer opportunities for XYZ in my city, or reach out to people that you know who um, are passionate about those issues and see if they need help. Maybe even just your neighbors, who knows, like communities, things like that. That's, that's my thoughts. Christy, back yes. to you. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I totally agree with the time thing. If you don't have the money to give to an environmental organization... I would say giving your time, like volunteering, whether they're hosting a webinar or they're hosting an online event and they're looking for people who want to share things on social media, do graphic design. There's a lot of people looking for graphic design. I'm looking for graphic design. <laughs> Me too. Support my show. Like that's some way you can support environmental Jokes aside, I would say if you don't have like the, the money to help out with that, that's that's really helpful. But if you do have some money, I would say trying to figure out like there is definitely companies that are supporting like reducing food waste. There's like local community markets. I think focusing on how you can support your local economy in your community, like that's not directly like environmental, but like we need to support local businesses because if we're not supporting local businesses and the survival of those, how are we going to support, you know, our local community in future times of crisis, like the climate crisis. And I think thinking about local businesses, especially ones that are focused on sustainability, plant-based diets, um, supporting on amplifying like people of color in the workplace, like I would say support, you know, a takeout meal here and there. Um, I know even some businesses are even offering special discounts on delivery um, right now. And I think just like looking up and researching how you can support those businesses is really important right now. And outside of that, I would say like there's a lot of organizations working on Earth Day right now, like on Earth Month, people are who are going to need more capacity building environmental justice organizations. I would say slide into their Instagram DM, say, hey, I really love the work you were doing. I just wanted to know like, 
if there's any events you're planning or things I could support with. Um, and I assure you that they need that. So, and, and me included. So if you want to assist me in the work that I'm doing, I'm always down for that. Those are really great suggestions, Joelle. And I, I totally agree with that. I think, you know, you kind of already touched on this earlier about an emergency fund. And, and, you know, I think moving forward after COVID, like having an emergency fund is like both a luxury and a necessity at the same time. And I think when we're thinking about climate change and the climate crisis, people really need to start putting their money into something like that. So I just want to know if you had any suggestions on on how people could think about an emergency fund. You kind of already talked about it earlier in the episode, but if you could lay that out, because I think that's very central to what we're talking about in this episode. Yeah, no, um, totally. So the first part of the emergency fund, um, it all goes back to budgeting. I'm sorry, everyone, you have to do it. (laughs) But you have to figure out how much money you spend every month, because that's what you're supposed to base your emergency fund on. So figure out, I'm sorry, everyone, I know it's not sexy, but once you get this, maybe it will be. So uh, figure out how much you need to spend to save uh, for monthly expenses. Then, like I said, the recommended is three to six months in circumstances that are not like these. It's ideal that you do this before a crisis happens. Like you said, saving for an emergency fund right now is really hard for so many reasons, but absolutely should be prioritized because... I think that there's just a lot of uncertainty about how long this is going to last. And to be honest, I I don't say this to be like alarmist or anything, but I've just been, you know, I watched a a podcast or a a YouTube with the International Monetary Fund and they're expecting a very significant impact because the magnitude that the coronavirus has had on everyone so instantaneously so I think the reality is that this could last for a long time and we need to prepare ourselves for that reality. So in terms of how you can save incrementally, I mean, it's hard because people right now who are like paycheck to paycheck or don't have a paycheck, you're already not spending anything. Like it's not like you have extra money to spare, which is why I said seek out those resources if they are available via the government or externally via mutual aid organizations. If you are still employed and you still have some source of income, pinch your pennies. And I mean, fortunately, like, it's not like we can go out right now. Like it's not (laughs) like you can like go shopping or anything. So that extra money, put that into a savings account immediately. And like, I think the other thing is like, it doesn't have to be like a hundred dollars at a time. It can literally be like $5, $10, maybe make a savings goal for a week, maybe $10 a week or something like that. Something that feels manageable for you, but that you stick to and you commit to because really you're investing in yourself for the future. There was one other thing that I was going to say that I forgot. Oh, um, okay. The other thing is that that might help with your savings is maybe think about how you can make new money. Obviously that's really hard right now, but if you have a skill that is really great, (laughs) that you can offer via like social media or like a website or something like a lot of tools are free on the internet to market yourself. So if you're able to give like singing lessons or like, I don't know, you're a great dancer and you can give people dance lessons on Instagram. See if you can be entrepreneurial and create a side hustle to uh, make more money for yourself. Uh, So that's, that's how I would say 
for that. I hope that helps, but I know it's super challenging right now. It's so challenging, but I think it's really important to think about in the long term. But I think in the short term, just focus on, you know, paying off your debts, figuring out how to budget. And I think also like something I want to bring up on my end is think about how you're interacting as a group with like the people that you live with. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think people underestimate the power of collective buying. And I think that like collective living can save you a lot of money because you're buying bigger portions of things, Mm -hmm. but you're spending less on it. And I think that that's something a lot of people need to rely on right now is like, especially if you live with other people, it may be awkward. It may be uncomfortable, but be like, Hey, I'm really in debt. Are you really in debt? Like, are you as stressed out about what's going on right now as me? And then we can like bulk buy according to our values together, Mm -hmm. the products we want to buy. And you're going to probably save a ton more money and it's going to last you longer. So Mm -hmm. I say rely on your community Mm -hmm. for support. I don't always like to recommend people make GoFundMes because that can be really stressful and like can actually like put a lot of stress on yourself to like rely that externally. I think it's more about like, how can I start building these networks of support with others to like purchase items and like build wealth together? Because there's also options where I think like you could like maybe set aside some time with your housemates or the people you live with or friends on a Zoom chat and be like, you know what, let's just sit down and like make a budget together. Like, let's make a Google sheet together. Like, I know I had to do that. Like my friend helped me budget out my entire trip I had a few months ago. And if like they didn't do that with me, it was it wouldn't have happened. And it literally like I think having someone in your life to hold you accountable towards that and maybe it's awkward. Um, but it could be a fun activity you do in quarantine to start figuring out. And not only is it a fun thing, it's a necessary thing. So that way you're not freaking out. Like you actually know to the dollar how much money you have to spend on your food, your utilities, your rent. And then maybe if there's like five to ten dollars left okay, I'm going to put this in an emergency fund. So I'm also not stressing out about investing that tenfold in the future. And I think that, you know, these longer term, bigger, like getting into the stock market stuff, maybe that's a little further down the line after you just get your basic survival down. But I think that thinking about these things is very like practical, sustainable ways that you can like save money right now and be saving little by little for future disasters like this um, is really important. So I think that's great. I completely agree. I think just to add to that too, that one thing that made me think of is that um, there will probably be more aid packages coming in the future because like I said, this will be a long-term thing. It's not going to get solved overnight. One thing that we can all do from our homes is call our local representatives and advocate for the aid that you need because, I mean, the stimulus check was was good. That was a step forward, but again, it excluded so many people And there are so many things that we still need. And as long as we know that there's more coming, why not try to advocate for yourself and your community at the same time? 100%. And I just want to ask you, Joelle, like, you know, this, this hour literally zoomed by for like the everyday person who has no wealth, who's living paycheck to paycheck. What would you like them to remember after listening to this week's podcast episode? That's such a good question. I think know that it is possible to get through living paycheck to paycheck. It's so hard. Um, and doing the things that I've recommended, they're not easy. Like I said, they really are not sexy. Like it's really not fun to do these things. And as you mentioned earlier, Christy, it can be very like sensitive and unsettling. 
But I want people to know that it is accessible and that there are also people in your lives who can help you. So if you feel so inclined to reach out to people, honestly, you can reach out to me, the Joelle show on Instagram, the.joelle.show. Like <laughs> there are resources out there that can help you. I think also something that I feel like I get uh, stuck up on personally is like, I feel like I have this idea of something I will never know how to do. But I think just like simply researching some things that feel like scary or foreign, like for me, the hardest part about doing that is literally just the first step of like opening up Google and then like typing in that question. And that feels scary. And then you start reading articles and you're like, oh, I don't know what that means. But But something that's been really affirming to me is that I have built this base of knowledge from feeling that way at the very beginning. Mm -hmm. And, and I've continually been scared and, and learning, but, but it really does add up. And also like, there are so many resources out there right now. Like I said, you can reach out to me or people that, you know, anything like that. And I hope that people can try to move past the, the fear and the stigma of personal finance, because I know it's scary, but it can be very freeing and, and like a catalyst for you to kind of move into the next phase of your life. So yeah, yeah I hope that this information helps. Like I know yeah. the investing stuff to like that. I mean, that is a whole other thing. I tried try to keep it simple for now. Like I think I just need to do a video about that. And I think I'll probably write a blog post too to point people to resources because there is like so much to know about investing. <laughs> so, there's so many questions, but I think that this was a great start to just put it into people's brains. And mm-hmm. I think a big point I want to drive home is that like, yes, we are currently in this economic system, yes, there's other ways that like we can learn to live cooperatively and to like avoid that system and figure out how to, you know, play the system to our benefit while also living sustainably. But I think that like until you actually recognize, you know, the financial burden that's placed on a lot of people, it's very hard for people to care about or think about things like the environment when you're financially Mm -hmm. struggling. And Mm -hmm. I think in order for us to get to that point of figuring out how we can all live more sustainably and care about the climate, uh, we need to give people a base level to feel like secure where they're at. And then Mm -hmm. like to, to figure out this stuff and, and those things don't have to be a dichotomy, but they currently are. And we have to continue to push the language forward that encourages people, Hey, you know, you can be responsible with your finances and care Mm -hmm. about the planet at the same time. And it's just a day by day process of figuring out how to bring that to people. And that's Mm -hmm. how we collectively come together and rise up. So thank you so much, Joelle. This was like so awesome. Unreal. Follow her at the Joelle show. Thank you, Christy. Thank you for listening to part one of this week's episode of the Brown Girl Green Show. You can either stick around for part two to learn more details about where your money exactly goes and how to invest it in environmentally friendly things, or you can go on with the rest of your day. For my part one listeners, I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Brown Girl Green. Please feel free to subscribe and share the show with your friends, your partner, your Lola, your Kuya, and whoever else feels relevant. Thanks so much. So let's say after you figure out and manage your personal finance goals, and then you have all this money to care about the planet. Then you can move on to the second half of today's episode where we talk about ways that you can move your money to focus more on ESG investing with Lila Holtzman from As You Sow. Take a listen.
So my name is Lila Holzman. I am the energy program manager at As You So. It's been really fascinating, you mentioned, to learn exactly, you know, how the financial sector's role is um, very complex when it comes to uh, social impact investing and social uh, impact investing. And just there's a few other wor- terminology, quirky things that we'll get into. But um, it's been an interesting journey. And so excited to talk about it. Great. Well, thank you so much for introducing yourself. How do you think you are changing the image of what it means to be an environmentalist? People think of an environmentalist in, in sort of the, you know, activist protesting kind of way. And so here I am representing more the investor side and the finance side and talking with companies and not protesting outside of their doors. So um, <laughs> I think that's something that's a, a bit different. In general, I think I've, I've always sort of wanted to be an environmentalist that c- is more relatable, that, that doesn't turn mm-hmm. people off. So like, even inside companies that I would say are doing some really bad things when it comes to the environment, I want them to be able to kind of understand where I'm coming from too. So I, I feel like what I'm trying to do is is speak the language of some of the other sectors that we don't often engage with other than, you know, from a more outside perspective. And I, I try to be an environmentalist on the inside, which is a kind of a different way of looking at it. Yeah. And I think a lot of people are like, oh, if you're not doing activism on the outside, like you're like greenwashing or like you're selling out for the movement, all these things. So what would you say are like some of like, you would say like are the challenges of holding like the power in the position that you're currently in, but also like the benefits of being like an insider in those rooms? Yeah, I think... I mean, greenwashing is absolutely a challenge that's real. Like we don't, you know, want to see companies saying something because it sounds good and you look at what their actions are and it's nothing close to what we need. So that is what we're trying to avoid. But we also do think that corporations have a huge role to play. Their impact is huge. Mm -hmm. And so if you can get them to listen and if you can get them to understand just that some of the small changes that they make even if they try to get extra credit for them, small changes have a big impact when it's a big company. Yeah. So that's kind of the, the balance that we do. And I, I think, you know, some of those audiences don't start off very open. And so if you come at them saying, you know, accusing them of being terrible and, and doing the wrong thing, they might not respond well. But if you come at them mm. saying, look, like, we we understand where you're coming from, here's where we're coming from, and let's see where we can find some alignment. It you have to like, it takes a while, which can be frustrating, but there's, you know, a certain uh, level of trust that you want to get to where you realize we're all people. And if you can talk to people, even if they're inside of an institution that you don't always think of as doing the right thing, like there's common ground to find. And that's what we try to do. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. (laughs) I think a lot of people want to want to know about that. And yeah, building off of that, I've heard a lot of these terms floating around like ESG, like environmental social governance uh, or socially responsible investing. That's a mouthful. 
I'm just wondering if you can define that for our audience and how exactly like that works. Yep, there are, I, I mean, I feel like in most fields that you go into, you, you learn that there's a whole language and a whole <laughs> set of new acronyms to learn. Yeah. And so our, this field I'm in is no different. So the, the big one that is uh, becoming more and more of a buzzword is ESG. And you, you definitely, you nailed it. So it's environmental, social, and governance factors. When we talk about it with investing, what it means is is investing in a way that you're incorporating and, and prioritizing uh, metrics, things that you can measure that are related to the environment, related to social impact, and related to governance. And governance means like how a company um, is structured and whether you know it has the right met, like oversight and and systems and processes in place to appropriately deal with with some of the the E and the S factors. You you can research and analyze and figure out and compare what companies are doing related to these factors. And some companies okay. have best practices, but then you look and see if other companies are doing those same practices or not. And investors can choose and can decide that they're only going to invest in certain companies that, for example, have a greenhouse gas emission target. Okay. And if you look at this at like a bigger scale, at a portfolio scale, you can say, I only want to invest in a portfolio of companies that is green, that is not doing um, anything related to fossil fuels. And then you start getting into some of the nuance of, like, well, if every company uses electricity, what does that mean? And what are their impacts? And so you start getting into the weeds pretty quickly. But overall, yeah. what it means is just prioritizing and looking at some of these values that you as an investor might hold. And what we're starting to see, too, is that this is not just about like doing the right thing because it's good for, for people. It's it's good for profit as well. And so we're starting to get the data, especially now that space is getting a little bit more mature and that companies and, and investments that prioritize ESG factors over the long term end up performing better. So mm -hmm. it makes makes good economic sense. And it's just kind of shifting the way we think about things and and looking not just at the very near-term profit turnaround, but also other factors. Yeah. So when people are saying like there's a like a big dichotomy between like making money and taking care of the environment, you believe that like companies could do both? Exactly. It's not a trade-off issue. And so that's that is the language that is the messaging that we are trying to communicate. And we present things in terms of the business case to show, look especially with something like climate change, which has such a systemic risk to it. So if you're looking and you're a company that wants to be profitable in 30 to 50 years, you've got to understand that you have to reduce your impact on climate change and that climate change will impact you. And so there are some, some maybe short-term trade-offs, but we're, we're looking at the long-term and thinking about, you know, what's, yeah. what's going to be, be the best for uh, like win-win situations for everyone just on a, a bit yeah. of a longer term time horizon. Yeah. Do they, you like, this is so general, but like, do some of the companies you work with, like, do they use the argument like, oh, that's not going to like impact us in our lifetime? Or have they like actually seen like the emergency around what's happening and actually thinking about the long term? Like what, what have you seen in the field? We're seeing that exact conversations starting to change. So I would say as recently as five years ago, some of the companies that we work with now um, would have said, oh, we don't think this is going to be an issue we have to pay attention to right now. It's something yeah. we kind of think about along the list of other things that we're concerned with. 
But, you know, California fires, we saw PG&E was labeled the first climate bankruptcy and we're seeing hurricanes hitting the Gulf Coast and we're seeing all these mm-hmm. impacts being worse than the predictions were. And so so companies, yeah. I, I, I no longer talk to anyone at companies that thinks climate change isn't a risk they have to deal with. The mm-hmm. question, the disagreement more comes along the lines of how quickly and what are the steps we, we need to take and whose responsibility is it? But yeah, we're past mm-hmm. the point of anyone I talk to saying that it's it's not something that they have to consider. Everyone now knows it is. And that conversation, that shows progress. I mean, it's, it's yeah. maybe a small win, but it's it means something that companies really do. They are taking it seriously much more than they used to. Yeah, I think that's interesting. You brought up like the who's responsible part, because I think a lot of people are like, okay, yeah, we want to deal with the issue. We want to deal with the crisis, but like who's going to pay for that? Like the mitigation, who's going to pay for like the insurance, who's going to pay for the ways in which our company is going to like be secure in times of crisis. So I think that 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 is a really big challenge, but it's also like you can figure out all these complex issues internally in your companies to do nonsense, like designing some AI robot that feeds you bagels, but you can't figure (laughs) out how to like create climate mitigation strategies. Like, come on. Um, Anyways, I, I that's frustrating, but I'm glad that companies are stepping up because they need to, and it shows that like the conversation is changing, and that like, yeah, business as usual, like rather, no matter what your like quote unquote like values are along a political spectrum, it's like no, your literal company is going to be at risk, and as we can see, like with COVID, like our economic infrastructure is so vulnerable in times of crisis. Like we don't have plans to mitigate disaster. And so it's like, if we don't have that in place, like climate change is just like going to keep damaging the economy. And if like people really care about that, then it needs to be framed that way. And there needs to be actual plans in place instead of just being in disaster recovery mode, which like eventually we're not going to like be able to bounce back from so quickly. So I think right. it's so important. Yeah. Yeah. And I do think <laughs> COVID is showing us a lot about a, a bunch of, a lot about lessons that we can also apply to the climate crisis. Um, in both instances, we're seeing, you know, science telling us some obvious steps that need to be taken early and that early preparation and early planning saves a lot of harm in the long term. And that's certainly something that applies to, to both of these crises. And so, um, yeah, working with with companies to understand, especially from our as you so's perspective, which is the investor perspective, that all companies need to be doing their part. That they are we are all responsible. To go back to like bigger picture stuff with like ESG investing, uh, I wanted you to describe to us what is the reality of financial institutions currently investing in fossil fuels and or the destruction of the earth at this moment. Yeah, that's real. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, with, so there's a few ways to think about that. So one is when you talk about financial institutions, you know, we think of the banks, the big banks. For those on the more activist side, if you follow work that like the Rainforest Action Network ran has done, they every year put out a report that that does a lot of analysis on what banks are financing in terms of fossil fuels and how much financing of 
is are coming from banks into fossil fuel companies and fossil fuel projects. Um, and I would say that some big banks that we, a lot of us keep our money in are on that list. So in the U.S., we've got J.P. Morgan, Bank of America, Citibank, um, Morgan Stanley, Wells Fargo, like the, the common names that we've all heard of are, are on that list. And it's interesting because as you so works with them, because those are public banks. So they, those banks all have investors, they all have shareholders, and we work with the banks to say, look, we're your shareholders and we are concerned. And we also recognize that those banks are also doing some good stuff. They, they are investing in green um, initiatives and green companies. And when they talk about that, we say, yes, but you're also still investing in the, in the, the dirtier areas. And <laughs> yeah. so that's where we've got problems and concerns. And then you think, well, what, where can I put it? And there are some banks that are, are setting more targets or making more clear that they plan to measure and align their, their financing with the Paris Agreement. Um, we're seeing more progress in Europe than in the U.S., but there are some smaller U.S. banks that are doing some good work there. There is a lot of funding going to fossil fuels, and it makes fossil fuels companies able to keep doing what they're doing. And insurance is another arena where we're, we're seeing you know, insurance companies continuing to underwrite and give policies to, to projects that are destabilizing the climate. So it's kind of like, wow. why are insurance companies doing that if they're then the ones that are supposed to cover when we have increased fires? It's, it's kind of a crazy disconnect. Wow. Then the other piece to, to think about is, you know, financial institutions beyond just holding your money, they're also offer investments that people, everyday people can invest in. And so there's mutual mm-hmm. funds. And if your employer offers 401k plans, that's something that you might be familiar with. Those are, you know, putting your money into the market. And most Mm -hmm. of those options are diversified across the entire economy, which usually is a good thing. But that also means that you probably own some fossil fuel related companies as well, that those are included in those those types of portfolios. (laughs) So it really is embedded in everything and and it's it's part of the default option that a lot of people don't realize. Wow. Yeah, I don't think I mean, I don't even think I knew anything about this until probably like last year and I've been doing this work for a long time. I mean, I always knew that like oh, big banks were involved in fossil fuels, but I never thought about like insurance companies. Like if I want to retire one day, like that that would be invested in fossil fuels. That's that's really insane but it seems like it's almost like not impossible but it seems like it's really hard to like move out of that if like you know a lot of people one aren't like educated about like that their money is stored in those places but then two it sounds like like will people get a better deal with like their money moving it out of those banks like I don't know and I feel like people have to do like their own research on what their priorities are for like a banking institution but I don't know if you have any suggestions about that. Yeah. And I think you're right that it is challenging, but hopefully getting less so. And part of that does come down to us and what we ask for out of our financial institutions that are there to serve us. Um, yeah. and, and, you know, and I, I do have to give the disclaimer that as you so and myself, we're not certified financial advisors. And so <laughs> we aren't going to tell you what to do with your money. Yeah, exactly. Um, but we do have some tools that are helpful for learning what, what your money is doing. And so 
We have, um, if you go to our website, there's a whole investor values suite of tools. And if, if the easiest one to remember is fossilfreefunds.org is the, is the website that has um, a way to plug in and see for different mutual funds for 401k options. Um, how do they compare across um, to other options that might be available on okay. things like how much fossil fuels are in them? Um, we wow. have a few different ones because with ESG investing, there are different values. And the unfortunate thing is that one fund that's fossil free might be good in that area and then not so good in some other areas. And we also have like tobacco free funds and weapon free funds <laughs> and um, okay. deforestation free. We've got one cool. focused on gender investing, gender equality. Um, cool. So there's, it's an interesting evolving space because investors are diverse and want and care about a lot of different social causes. And there are increasingly products available kind of tailored to those wants. And the good thing with that is that it shows that the that demand is increasing. And so um, mm-hmm. I know I was talking to you about how I, I am a millennial and in the field I'm in, there's a lot of folks that are older than me and they see my generation coming and the ones after as caring much more about these types of issues. And so they're recognizing mm-hmm. that and they're starting to create new funds that are tilted or screened towards caring about ESG stuff. Okay. And so it, it is up to us to, to be asking for that because it is working. When we ask for it, they recognize that the, that demand is increasing and, and the yeah. financial institutions start to provide more of those options. It's not a silver bullet. We don't have a perfect new fancy thing that's going to solve the problem yet. But I think the more we ask for it, the more options we'll get. And so one yeah. one thing to mention too is with, with 401k plans, you know, not every employer realizes their employees are looking at that and care and just ask. Like your um, HR department might not have a good answer for you yet, but if you, especially if you've got others alongside you in your organization who you can team up with and show that there's real interest, that's certainly mm-hmm. one way to, to start to see more of those options or get some more answers. Just make it yeah. easier for people to actually have a say in where their money is going. Because I think for so many of us, it's, it's kind of an intimidating space. And we kind of think of like, oh, whatever the default is, if, if that's how things usually work, that's what I'll do. And yeah. we, we need to be questioning that and to try to make it something where we can play a bigger role and, and, and voice what we, what we want to be invested in or not. But it does, it takes a bit of effort now and hopefully we'll start to see more of those solutions um, coming about. Yeah. But we do just recommend that you educate yourself and, and see for yourself what you're comfortable with and where, and also how, you know, risk adverse you are. And is the only way that people would be able to like contact their financial institution through like being like a stakeholder or is there any other way that people could plug in? Um, there are other ways. I, I think, you know, it depends on who you are and what, where your comfort zone is. Like I would say some of the more activist groups might be doing letter campaigns or they might actually be organizing events outside of banks. I've seen those walking around San Francisco and, you know, just talking to a financial advisor at your bank, if you're opening a new account, if you, you know, there are certain things where you you can ask people and it might not be the person in charge, but the more it gets heard, the more it gets um, brought up, up the, 
up the ladder to those who actually have more power to change it. And so um, I think there's there's opportunities to to figure out who can who can listen, who do you have access to, um, and whatever your comfort level is and whatever your interests are, um, find find ways to to take some action. Great. Well, thank you so much for informing us about ESG investing and getting people started on figuring out what that is, how they can educate themselves. I think it was really useful and informative. Glad to hear that. Great to be on. It's good good talking to you. And I think um, I really appreciate the work that you're doing, bringing these kinds of messages to different audiences. It's really great. This is Brown Girl Green, and I hope that you can smash that young subscribe button on where you listen to podcasts. And I hope you can share this episode with your friends, your family, and just be well. Thanks so much.